So this morning, we want to reflect just for a few minutes on the, the life and the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King. As I said earlier, I think in the biblical tradition of inspired leaders. And um, Cheryl, Rob, and I spent a little bit of time this week thinking about how we might do that and landed on an interview from many, many years ago between Alex Haley and Dr. King, um, which of all things uh, showed up in a Playboy publication. <laughs> but um, really uh, interesting and thorough and provocative interview, covered a ton of ground about, again, his life and his ministry and civil rights and accusations and realities and on and on and on. So um, what we decided to do this morning is Cheryl's going to take a piece and reflect just a few minutes on that. And, Rob's going to take peace and reflect for just a few minutes, and uh, I'm going to say a few comments as well after after they've spoken. Uh, and might then ask you if there's anything you want to say about his legacy. So, anyway, welcome. Thank you, glad that you're here this morning. <coughs> I'm going to begin with the excerpt from the interview that I chose to focus on. So here are the words of Dr. King in response to Alex Haley. There cannot be deep disappointment without deep love. Time and again in my travels, as I have seen the outward beauty of white churches, I've had to ask myself, what kind of people worship there? Who is their God? Is their God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And is their Savior the Savior who hung on the cross at Golgotha? Where were their voices when a black race took upon itself the cross of protest against man's injustice to man? Where were their voices when defiance and hatred were called for by white men who sat in those very churches? I decided that perhaps I'd like to think of myself as an extremist in light of the spirit which made Jesus an extremist for love. It sounds as though I'm comparing myself to the Savior but let me remind you that all who honor themselves with the claim of being Christians should compare themselves to Jesus. Thus, I consider myself an extremist of that brotherhood of man which Paul so nobly expressed. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all ones in Christ Jesus. Love is the only force on earth 
that can be dispensed or received in an extreme manner without any qualifications, without any harm to the giver or to the receiver. I confess that I do believe, do not believe that this day is around the corner. The concept of supremacy is so embedded in white society, it will take many years for color to cease to be a judgmental factor. But it is certainly my hope and dream. Indeed, it is the keystone of my faith in the future that we will someday achieve a thoroughly integrated society. I believe that before the turn of the century, if trends continue to move and, and envelop as presently as we have moved along, a long way towards such a society. There ends the selection that I picked. And in reflecting on this selection, I chose to talk today about the king of faith. For king, we are all one in Christ Jesus. He sees his Christian faith as one that is present in time, but is one that transcends time, transcends space, and transcends human skin. I believe that we can believe in those ideals too. And when we truly see the sacredness of the human person, we won't exploit people. We will see them fully as we see ourselves. I chose to focus on this passage because it reflects the very ideals that we see in biblical theology and in Christian faith. I chose it out of many passages in this very long interview, and I'm proud that I did. Yet there, the one passage I didn't choose, I'm going to weave in here. Early in the interview, before King even gets to talking about faith, those words which profoundly moved me, King speaks, speaks about his young daughter Yolanda's fascination with a local amusement park, Funtown, that they drove by often, and her fervent, childlike desire to visit. Who hasn't been there, either as a child or a parent, seeing Funtown, seeing the amusement park, seeing the fair, and saying, can we go, please? Can we go, please? Can we go, please? Can we go in, please? Funtown might represent the essence of human joy as seen through a child. Whether you're five or 65, fun is at the core of our soul. Joy is at the core of our faith. The desire of a child to have some simple fun. Yet that very basic right was denied to Yolanda because of the color of her skin. She had to pass Fun Town by, not because her parents said, no, we can't stop today. She was denied Fun Town because she was black. She learned the hard way that structures existed that prevented her from the most basic human joy. Structural racism strikes at the core of our faith and the core of our being, the part that is beyond male or female, Jew or Greek, blue state or red state, old or young. It puts us starkly into a world of difference based on skin color. 
King links the nature of our being and the essence of our souls with the promise of dignity and realizing that a part of God's kingdom is still to come and we are part of it. Yet sometimes in our geography, in our actions, in the institutions that make up our lives, we are still very, very far away. Today, we're the bearers of a dream that King never realized. We are called to use our faith and our action to help keep the King hope alive. We must all be in those amazing King words that I just read, extremists for love. And we must lift all of our eyes, not only to the tenets of our faith, but to the subtle and not so subtle structures and equities that keep some from reaching their full potential and use our efforts to work towards justice for all, whether that's watching the joy of children experiencing Funtown, or whatever the contemporary um, metaphor is, or knowing that our institutional structures prevent opportunity for many and must be dismantled one by one. King talked a lot about the cooperation of the white churches. Many did cooperate, yet so many lacked their voice on issues or stood by in maybe some tacit apathy, despite a clear message to do otherwise. We, the people of the white churches, must use our voice in the church, in the school, in the workplace, in our neighborhood, to amplify the voices that aren't heard, and to make sure even the simplest coffee circle isn't exclusionary. We must all be like King, extremists for love and continue to expose the places where inequality prevails and lend our voice, our efforts, and our love. And we'll use this love to prevail on what remains a very long walk toward justice. No more can I do 
then I go on again because you ask me to. Some days I look down, afraid I would fall, and though the sun shines, I see nothing at all. I don't have my preacher's voice yet. I got to be closer to you. Okay, so this, this from King, um, 1965, same interview. <clears throat> Middle of the civil rights era. Segregation, as even the segregationists know in their hearts, is morally wrong and sinful. If it weren't, the white South would not be haunted as it is by a deep sense of guilt for what it has done to the Negro, guilt for patronizing him, degrading him, brutalizing him, depersonalizing him, thingifying him, guilt for lying to itself. This is the source of the schizophrenia that the South will suffer until it goes through its crisis of conscience. This crisis of conscience may not come next week or next year, but it is certainly more imminent in the South than in the North. If the South is honest with itself, it may well outdistance the North in the improvement of race relations. That is because the Northern white, having had little actual contact with the Negro, is devoted to an abstract principle of cordial interracial relations, 
The North has long considered in a theoretical way that it supported brotherhood and the equality of man. But the truth is that deep prejudices and discriminations exist in hidden and subtle and covert disguises. The South's prejudice and discrimination, on the other hand, has been applied against the Negro in obvious, open, overt, and glaring forms, which make the problem easier to get at. The Southern white man has the advantage of far more actual contact with Negroes than the Northerner. Okay. So, so here we have King comparing North and South in 1965, United States, middle of that era of civil rights. Particularly, he's referring to prejudice, segregation, and integration. In the South, the problem was open and overt. Segregation was actually legal at that time. In the North, the prejudice was subtle and hidden, no segregation, but the prejudice was there, he is saying. In the South, prejudice may have been easier to get at, to treat, because it was so in the open. In the North, people felt more righteous. Hey, we fought the war that ended slavery, after all. The, Southerner, the Southerners' behavior could actually be affected by changing laws and bringing in the National Guard. The Northerner supported all that, supported civil rights for all in the South but did not necessarily think there was much work to do in the North, not compared to the racist South. If you said discriminations exist in hidden and subtle disguises in the North as King did, the Northerner might have said, what are you talking about? In this way, King might have been anticipating the issue of white privilege which is also hidden, also so hard to be aware of, also requiring intense and unequivocating self-examination, also met with strong resistance. What do you mean self-examination? White privilege? What about it? It's not like segregation. There's no law against white privilege, whatever you want to call it. What about it? Yeah. So, you know the story, uh, I'm gonna tell it to you anyway. The story about the two fish and the older fish, two young fish, swimming this away. Older fish comes by, says, hey boys, how's the water? Two fish down, down the way look at each other, go, what's water? Abram Kendi, who wrote, Abram X. Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, that, by the way, lays it all out for you. If you're interested, that's it. He's talking about white privilege. He says, it's the privilege of being inherently normal, standard, and legal. That's what white, white privilege is. It's the water we swim in. So let me, let me skip, I gotta to talk to you about Patrick. Patrick is a man that uh, you know, I got to know, he was over at my house. He's a, he's a big man, big African-American man. He, he, he likes expensive cars, he has a good job. 
He, he lives in a nice neighborhood in Westchester. And he's just telling, telling me about his, his average day where, and that he, in his car, he, he puts in the visor his license and his pay stub. So that when he stopped, not if he stopped, but when he stopped by the police, he can say, this is how I can afford this car. And he doesn't have to reach into his pocket to show the policeman his license. So that's his every day. One day he told me, he told me that there was a gun, the police had a gun and it was aimed right at him because they thought he had stolen that car. And he's, he's there with his hands on the wheel telling the police officer, I'm not moving my hands off the wheel. As long as that gun is aimed at me, I want you to see what my hands are doing. That's his every day. That's the water he swims in. You know, I don't live like that. I don't worry about it. I, I, I don't even think about it. I walk down streets into stores. I don't think about any of it. I sit down and order something to eat. I apply for a job. I apply for a loan. It doesn't even occur to me. I mean, at this point in my life, cops are actually my friends. So that started me down a long path. I mean, I'd heard those stories. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. That day, something, I don't know. I heard it. It's like I heard it for the first time. So now listen to King. King says, the South will suffer until it goes through a crisis of conscience. So what is that? And that, might that be true for, for all of us? Are, are we all Northerners now? Are we all Southerners now? Are we all the same thing now? This going through a crisis of conscience. We who, I didn't own slaves. I, none of my ancestors owned slaves. I'd never really done anything bad to anybody. So what's in it? for us to undergo this exploration of our conscience, this soul searching. Okay, so I think of it as a series of choices and here's some questions, they're just questions. Choices. If you consider and conclude that you have been given an unfair and unearned advantage in life, do you think realizing that could eventually would eventually lead to your heart being freer. If there is something false about the way we live, does that lead to a form of suffering? Could it be that this is what they mean when they say the truth can, would set us free? So let me ask that first question again. If you consider and conclude that you have been given an unfair and unearned advantage in life, do you think realizing that, realizing it, could eventually lead to your heart being freer? 
And then, might it change what we do with our lives? This is really serious material for prayer. Deep soul scouring stuff, transformational inner work. King did that work. His commitment to action really did depend on his inner work. And I say, I say, I think he would have us do ours too. And here, and I'll finish with this, are the choices he made. I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I mean, think about that. He, he, he put it into a choice, and he didn't say, I choose to help. I choose to feel bad about. I choose to feel guilty about. I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to identify with the poor. I choose to give my life for the hungry. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. I choose to live for and with those who find themselves seeing life as a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. This is the way I'm going. If it means suffering a little, I'm going that way. If it means sacrificing, I'm going that way. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way. Amen. Now the song Michael's going to sing I, reflects on the fact that I don't think he for a minute thought he would do this alone. Lord, 
Thank you to, to Cheryl and to Rob, and <clears throat> they've given us a lot to, to think about, and uh, so I'm just going just gonna to say a couple things very, very briefly. Here's one of them um, that King lifted up, the church once changed society. The church once changed society. It was a thermostat. But today the church is merely a thermometer which measures rather than molds popular opinion. And then he goes on from there to say, how would we recover the church being a thermostat rather than a thermometer? And suggests that uh, the church needs to be fully committed to crisis and tension. And that, that really, really struck me how easy it is, and I, I can't speak for all churches, I wouldn't want to, but how, how easy it is to want things to be, I don't know, pleasant, Say the right things. Not to upset the apple cart to keep everybody mostly feeling good. You know, life is hard and life is stressful. We need to come to church to feel a little better. I get that. I, 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 I get it. I get it. But he is asking us, and I think Jesus is always asking us to be prepared and willing to go to crisis and tension. Because those are the things that are necessary for us to grow. Essential for us to grow. And I know I know we want to keep growing. Another thing that jumped off the page and I think builds on that is um, there was a lot of things in this interview about how everybody told King to slow down. You guys remember that? Slow it down. Which is an interesting thing, right? Because again, it feels to me like slowing it down 
is a way of saying nobody wants to be too uncomfortable. Slow down because we don't want to be too uncomfortable. We don't want the crisis to elevate itself. But in the witness of our Christian faith, if something is right, particularly if something is urgent and right, then slowing it down makes no sense. Makes no sense. So Rob, I think, took us to an interesting place of what does it mean for us to have a sense of urgency? I don't know. What does it mean for us to be prepared to look at ourselves under the microscope? And what does it mean for us to look at the body of Christ under the microscope? Because it isn't really just about how we're doing or our church is doing. It is about how the body of Christ is doing. Because if the body of Christ means anything, it means that we are interconnected and we are interrelated. And the black church down there, how they're doing matters. And the Asian church over there, it matters how they're doing. And it not only matters how their churches are doing, but how they're doing in society. So I think this day is an invitation for us to jump into a larger conversation, an uncomfortable conversation, a conversation that asks us to look under the microscope at our own lives at the life and witness of the church. And then what Cheryl said at the beginning, there's this thing in this interview that says, are you prepared? Are you prepared to be an extremist for love? Which was interesting when I read it because I don't really want to be an extremist for anything. I have negative associations with the word extremist. <laughs> but I think what this interview is getting at is what are, what are the options? You want to be lukewarm? You want to be passive? There is nothing about Jesus that falls into that category. Like nothing. Every step he took, every place he went, every meal he had, every exchange, every encounter was a question and an invitation. Am I, am, am I gonna do love here? Am I gonna do sacrificial love here? Am I going to learn something new so I can identify better, so I can empathize more? Because that's actually what love does. It's not a nice idea. It's not a sweet idea. It's learning, growing, serving. So thank you 
for being here today. Thank you for celebrating this day with us. And the invitation from the pulpit today is, how extreme might I be? How thorough might I be? For the mandate, the ethic of love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you.